Our passage this morning is 1 Samuel 5, verse 1 through chapter 6, verse 12. And if you need a Bible to follow along, you can use one in the seat, and that's page 228. While you find that, let me just briefly remind you where we are. We're in the book of 1 Samuel. This is after the time of the judges when God's people have been struggling against their enemies and their own sin. God has risen up a new prophet in Samuel. But where we left off last week, God's people suffered a horrendous defeat at the hands of their enemies, the Philistines. And the Ark of the Covenant, that is, that box that contained the Ten Commandments and the reminders of God's covenant love and faithfulness, was carried off. And God's people were left in despair and mourning over the destruction that they had experienced, the destruction of the priestly line, and the theft of the Ark. And so we pick up now following what God is doing with the ark. May Lord bless the reading of his word from 1 Samuel 5 through 6.12. When the Philistines captured the ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. When they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord and the head of Dagon, and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. That is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon and Ashdod to this day. The hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod. And he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, but both Ashdod and its territory. And when the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, The ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is hard against us and against Dagon, our God. So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? They answered, Let the ark of the God of Israel be brought around to Gath. So they brought the ark of the God of Israel there. But after they had brought it around, the hand of the Lord was against the city, causing a very great panic. And he afflicted the men of the city, both young and old, so that tumors broke out on them. So they sent the ark of God to Ekron. But as soon as the ark of God came to Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, They have brought around to us the ark of the God of Israel to kill us and our people. They sent, therefore, and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, Send away the ark of the God of Israel and let it return to its own place, that it may not kill us and our people. For there was a deathly panic throughout the whole city. The hand of God was very heavy there. The men who did not die were struck with tumors, and the cry of the city went up to heaven. And the ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines seven months. And the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners and said, What shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us what we shall send it to its place. They said, If you send away the ark of the God of Israel, do not send it empty, but by all means return him a guilt offering. Then you will be healed, and it will be known to you why his hand does not turn away from you. And they said, What is the guilt offering that we shall return to him? They answered, Five golden tumors and five golden mice according to the number of the Lord of the Philistines. For the same plague was on all of you and on your lands. 
So you must make images of your tumors and images of your mice that ravaged the land and give glory to the God of Israel. Perhaps he will lighten his hand from off you and your gods in your land. Why should you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts after he had dealt severely with them? Did they not send the people away and they departed? Now then take and prepare a new cart and two milk cows on which there has never come a yoke and yoke the cows to the cart, but take their calves home away from them. And take the ark of the Lord and place it on the cart and put it in a box at its side, the figures of gold, which you are returning to him as a guilt offering. Then send it off and let it go its way and watch. If it goes up on the way to its own land, to Beth Shemesh, then it is he who has done us this great harm. But if not, then we shall know that it is not his hand that struck us. It happened to us by coincidence. The men did so and took two milk cows and yoked them to the cart and shut up their calves at home. And they put the ark of the Lord on the cart and the box with the golden mice and the images of their tumors. And the cows went straight in the direction of Beth Shemesh along one highway, lowing as they went. They turned neither to the right nor to the left, and the lords of the Philistines went after them as far as the border of Beth Shemesh. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. For those of you following along in your Bibles, you might have been surprised with where that ended in verse 12. For many of the translations you may be using, that ends in the middle of a paragraph. Uh, but on one hand, the, the following of what happens with the ark just seemed too big and to have too many themes to read through the rest of it. And yet what verse 12 gives us is the point at which the Philistines know for certain that this has been from the Lord when they follow the cart to Beth Shemesh. And so we're going to end it there and we'll pick up next week. We'll discuss the rest of it. And uh, I hope that you will be able to join us next week. I, I, this passage is full of uh, surprise. We deal with, not with God's people, but with the Philistines. There's some humor, maybe dark humor, but there's some humor, especially at the beginning of the passage. This is a wonderful passage. But for all that we might enjoy for its entertainment value, this is God's word. This is the history of God's action in this world that he was recorded for you and for me and for all of his people. So let's pray that we would not only uh, understand it, uh, be entertained by it, but we would grasp it and be instructed. Gracious God, we thank you for your word. Lord, in so many ways, these events seem so far afield from the way that we live our everyday life. Sacrifices, tumors, and idols, diviners, but Lord, you are the same God yesterday, today, and forever. And your word reveals who you are to your people. So would you give us sight? Would you give us comprehension? Would I be merely a tool for that purpose? And would all the ways that my words fall short be quickly forgotten? In Jesus' name, amen. This, this is not the end of the story. This is not the end. It's true of this passage, and it's true for so many of us in the ways that we enjoy different forms of entertainment. It doesn't matter how many times we've 
read or seen a spy thriller or an action movie or even a romantic comedy, if the movie is done well, if the story is told well, then we think the good guy is really captured, that the bad guy is going to win. We think that the couple has reached the last straw and that their relationship is finally over. There's no fixing it. And while maybe part of our brain as we read the book or watch the movie knows that something else is coming, we feel it. Is this the end? Does the bad guy finally die? Is the relationship finally over? And while we're in that place of suspended disbelief, we can still know, well, there's 20 more minutes in the movie. There's 30 more pages in the book. We know that in most stories, something else is after. But in the real world, outside of stories, outside of movies, that question of, is this the end, often leaves us unsure of the answer. Can I come back from that mistake? Is this relationship over? Can we fix this problem? Are things over? And though God's people, whom he has preserved through a worldwide flood, have seen him create a nation out of an elderly, childless couple, though they've been delivered out of famine by a brother sold into slavery, though they've gone from having Pharaoh cornering them against the mountains and a sea, only to walk through the parted sea, here again God's people are tempted to ask, is this the end? Is it over? As we left off last week, that seemed to be where God's people were. The widow of Phineas has heard that her father-in-law has died, that her husband has died, that her brother-in-law has died, and that the Ark of the Covenant has been captured. And as she gives birth, before she too passes, she names him Ichabod. Where's the glory? What has happened to the glory of God's people? The Ark of the Covenant is behind enemy lines. It's brought before the pagan god, Dagon, as spoils of war. Is it over? But as we read the passage this morning, we see that it's not over. In fact, it's only just beginning. God's glory will be vindicated. His power will be on display He will conquer his enemies. Israel has thought that all is lost, that their enemies have won the final last battle, that they will be under the heel of their boot for all the days to come. But what appears to be the ark's capture is about to become a victory tour through conquered territory by the conquering king. What we see in this passage is God's power on display. We see his power over the spiritual forces. We see his power over natural forces. We see his power over human forces. And so this morning, if there are things in your life that are asking, how can I get past this? How can I get through this? Is this a good thing over and done with? God offers us a picture In history where he has acted, where God's people thought it's over. We can't come back from this. And God shows his power to bring victory out of apparent defeat. 
And so this morning, my prayer is for you and for me that where we seem to run into obstacles, where there seems to be things that we cannot overcome, to reorient ourselves from our consequences to the power of God that we are trusting. So let's look at that power that God puts on display. First, his power over spiritual forces in this temple showdown. And this is where some of that humor kind of appears. The ark is brought into the house of Dagon, into the temple. Now, Dagon is not just a god. He is the chief god among the gods the Philistines worshipped. For those of you more familiar with perhaps like Greek uh, gods, it's like Zeus, the, the chief god. He is, if you're familiar with Baal, we read of Baal later in the prophets. Dagon is the father of Baal. And so they have brought the Ark of the Lord into the temple of Dagon, attributing their victory to Dagon. Thinking, we serve Dagon, he is a powerful God. He has shown how powerful he is by giving us victory over the weak Israelites and their weak God. And now this, this box covered in gold that is special to them that represents the presence of God, we bring in as a slave, as a captive before Dagon. They said, we have won victory. Dagon is the most powerful of gods. And yet God is going to disabuse them of this notion. He does so first by demonstrating his power over their gods by showing his power over their highest God. So they come, they bring the ark in, and as we read, the very next morning, they come in because it's at the morning when the first acts of worship would begin. They would take care of the rites there at the passage. And they rose early the next day, according to verse 3, and behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. Notice it says face downward. This is prostration. This is bowing. This is worship. But, you know, maybe a semi went by, the party got a little rowdy, and Dagon got knocked off his pedestal. So they just put him back up and said, well, that was weird. So they put him back in this place. But verse 4, but when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. Same position again. If there was a doubt that something had happened the night before, the day before, it's been reassured. But something's different now. Not only is Dagon in a position of worship and veneration, humbled before the symbol of the Lord, it says that the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. The head and the hands, they are the signs of power. And influence. And it was not a rare thing that the chiefs of your enemies, after being beaten in battle, would at times have their hands and their heads removed as symbols that the power of the enemy had been conquered. The Lord is proclaiming that he has vanquished Dagon in battle. Only the trunk is left, he is without power. He needed his own people to put him back up on the pedestal. Now there's nothing left. God has vanquished the spiritual forces aligned against him and against his people. And in so doing, as we read this, we begin to to be confirmed in what we read of the battle. 
that God was bringing judgment, correction, discipline on his people, not the Philistines won the battle. But the question for us as we read this, as we maybe chuckle at how they thought their God was awesome, now look at him, is do we care? Because as we in our culture and society have grown in our appearance of control, we treat this world as merely the amalgamation of of human decision-making, of political powers, of economic trends, of of material forces. The, The more we study, the more science, the more technology, the more we believe that we are in control and we understand what is running the world. And if we are prone to look at the world that way, we will be prone to depend on human solutions to the problems before us. But this isn't a new temptation. Even for those that have lived in times where what is happening in the events of the news, what is happening with the weather, what is happening with disease, was something they were quicker to connect to the gods, even then they were tempted to not deal with spiritual realities. In Ephesians chapter 4, as Paul writes to the church of Ephesus, many of those people there had rejected magic and making money off of magic spells and selling magic spells. And so there's potentially the, the, the desire to say, well, we made all our money off of, off of magic and, and spiritual forces. We just need to live in the real world, in the material world. He encourages them, in chapter 4. Finally be strong in the Lord and the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. He is saying your physical run-ins with the empire, your struggles to make money when you've been cut off of your guilds, what you are experiencing in this world is not just a struggle with material reality, but spiritual forces. The book of Revelation describes the Roman Empire as an evil harlot. Because as Rome wanted more and more power and more and more wealth, It was an evil force. We know that sometimes evil runs amok in capitalism where people's desire for power and money and influence causes them to oppress the poor. And the response isn't just, well, if you're suffering with poverty, if you don't have enough food to eat, for those of us struggling to fill our tanks with with gas these days, we don't just say, well, it's just an economic reality. It just is what it is. It's painful. It hurts. How much more so for those really hurt, for those caught up in slavery, for those who have no rights, who don't have a 40-hour work week. It is oppression and feels like it. How much more so with a different economic system, with communism that explicitly rejects God. It's not just an economic system, but through that economic system, spiritual realities are projected upon God's people. War is not just about danger because of bombs and bullets, but because of the twisting of our view of others into those that we think deserve our hate. 
And in so doing, we dehumanize ourselves and others. The effects of COVID and the pandemic are not just physical. They're psychological and they are spiritual. We wrestle with real evil. With real wrong. Not just the complex interlocking mechanism of politics and economics. The evil one is all too happy for those things to be used for slavery, for oppression, for evil. Yet we are called to trust in a God whose powers are stronger than the spiritual powers opposed to us. This calls us to be encouraged, to be of good faith in the midst of spiritual struggle, spiritual warfare, in the midst of deep temptation, that there are spiritual realities that are wanting, cheering you on into sin, and yet God is more powerful than the one tempting us. God is more powerful than the evil behind the evils we deal with in this world. But there is also a warning against putting our faith in anything but God. If we want to deal with war, if we want to deal with oppression, if we want to deal with political corruption, if our temptation is just to have human solutions, then we treat those things as idols that can save us. Whether it's an economic system, a family configuration, job status, it is nothing compared to the power of God. Why would we choose an idol that will end up no better than Dagon when we can trust in the Lord? And from here, it should only make sense that we read that God is not only more powerful than the spiritual forces aligned against him and his people, but he is more powerful than natural and human forces. First, we see that in his power over natural forces. In our passage, we see that God is sovereign over disease and plague. We find in verse 6 that the hand of the Lord was heavy against the people. And note the contrast. What happened to the hands of Dagon? They're cut off. They're powerless. But God is able to use his hands, metaphorically. His will is being enacted. And it's heavy against the people of Ashdod. And it says he terrified and afflicted them with tumors. God's power is demonstrated in his power and mastery over disease. Now this description here and the fact that there is some association with mice means that it's potentially an outbreak of bubonic plague or something similar. We don't know for sure. But we do know that everything that they tried to do to stop it was ineffective. They said, well, we'll escape if we send the ark. But rather than sending the ark relieving their struggle, God takes the judgment of the tumors with him. It goes from Ashdod onto Gath and onto Ekron. And yet the people don't attribute the disease to the mice. They attribute the disease to the God of Israel. They try to send the ark away, but where the ark goes, the Lord sends his power and the disease upon the people. And it's interesting to note that as they're sending the ark, they're sending him further away from the water. And these mice-borne, rat-borne diseases tend to be more prevalent near ports and the seas. So if there is any connection, it's saying, hey, the natural explanation is insufficient because as it gets further, it gets worse. They try to send the ark away. 
to three of the five main cities of the Philistines. Think of, as if we said, there's disease breaking out in New York, so they send the ark to Chicago, and then they send the ark from Chicago onto L.A. And disease follows it. The further away they send it, God's power only increases. God shows he's in control of this disease. Not their attempts to eradicate it, not their attempts to deal with it. It's interesting that throughout the passage, how do they continue to refer to God? They talk about the ark of the God of Israel. The ark of the God of Israel. The ark of the God of Israel. Over and over it's repeated in the passage. They continue to attribute God, Yahweh, as the God of just this local entity, of just this little nation. Even as they are confessing to themselves, as they think, what should we do about it? Well, we need to be careful to respond because remember what happened to the Egyptians and Pharaoh? They hardened their hearts and it ended up in their destruction. But they continue to think as if God is limited to a certain group of people, to a certain geography. They fail in all the things that they get right. They're saying, well, this is coming from God. He must be upset with us. He's in control. They still fail to see that he is God over all of creation, over all nations. And as he shows his power, we are reminded that God is not limited to Israel. God is not limited to any geographic region. He is not limited in the movement of the ark. God's power is on display over all natural forces in all places. And in the power over the natural forces of disease to direct and use according to his will, God is demonstrating his power over human forces. Not only does the disease spread, it creates deadly panic. Chapter 5, verse 9. Excuse me, verse, yeah, verse 9. It says this. But after they had brought it around, the hand of the Lord was against the city, causing a very great panic. And he afflicted the men of the city, both young and old. When there is a crisis, when there is a fire drill, when there is shelling upon your city, what makes it even more dangerous? Chaos and confusion. We have fire drills. We teach them in school. Why? So that the kids can respond in an orderly fashion so something bad doesn't happen when there's an actual fire. We send police and firemen to the scene of an accident, not just to help those people there, but so that the accident isn't worsened by people stumbling in upon it by disorganization. The disease is not the only thing that is bringing about the weakening of God's enemies, but the fear and the chaos that it brings with them. Verse 11 of chapter 5 then describes it not only as a panic, but a deadly panic. So, for there was a deathly panic throughout the whole city. They are afraid of death, and their panic and their fear is leading them into deadly circumstances. The interesting thing is that this is something God predicted would happen. In Deuteronomy 7, verse 23, when Moses was talking to the people about their eventual conquest, it said, but the Lord your God will give them over to you and throw them into great confusion until they are destroyed. And in Zechariah 14, 13, which talks of the great day of the Lord in the future, it says again on that day, the people and the nations will be thrown into confusion and panic. 
when the destruction of the enemy of God's people has gone on for seven months, and perhaps that seven means that it's reached the fullness of God's wrath, they finally decide they need to do something. And note that when they do, they recognize it is God's power over them. They say it themselves, this is God angry with us when the tumors break out among them. They recognize it is the Lord that they must appease. When they talk to the diviners and the priests, they realize that this isn't just circumstances that have happened, that something has happened between God and them, and they need to appease God. But they do not have knowledge or power in themselves. They have to look to appeasing the Lord from what God has said. They don't know, okay, in our rites, in our rituals, in our practices, we can do this. They have to refer to the practice of God's people. They have to remember that it will be tempting to not believe God's power against us just as Pharaoh and the Egyptians didn't believe. We need to take seriously God's power against us. We need to deal with the guilt. And that's why they suggest the sending of these five tumors of gold or five mice of gold that they represent the afflictions that they're experiencing. There's five of them because there's five princes. And so all of the leaders in the sending of these golden offerings to remove their guilt are saying, God, you are more powerful over us. We as the leaders of our nation are all representatively acknowledging your power over us and our need to make things right. The princes of the leaders are the princes are fixing the relationship with God. They are acknowledging their corruption and seeking the Lord. And verse six tells us only humility will help. Let's not be like the Egyptians and the pharaohs who destroyed. And one more time, it's confirmed in their eyes that this is from God. That God is having power over the Philistines. If there's any doubt, they set up a test. They look for milking cows. Milking cow, female cow. They milk when they, what? They have calves. And they put up a new cart. They build a cart. And they get cows that have never had yokes upon them. That means they're not habituated to pulling a cart, nor are they used to a certain pathway. They don't go to market and come home. So they're going to put a yoke on them. They're going to take their calves and shut them up. What's a mother cow going to want to do if its calf is not with it? Is it going to wander further away from home? No, it's going to want to go to where the calves are. So everything that they've done to set up this experiment should lead the cows to come back to home. But instead, veering neither to the left nor to the right, these cows head to the land of God's people, bearing the ark before them. Before the enemies of God's people, the glory and power of God is made manifest. And so the question is, what can stand against God? What can stand against God's people? What physical force, what enemy set against God's people can win? Not because we are strong. Not because we are powerful. But because God is. Why would we trust in anything else? And this is the question that should be before the people. One of the things that this passage does in the context of the book of 1 Samuel is it serves as a backdrop for their later desire to have a king. They say, give us a king like all the other kings. Like all the other nations. And yet, what is the purpose of a king? His job is to rule the people for their good by subduing all of their enemies, by giving them peace and safety. 
if God can do this, what earthly king, what Saul, what David, what Solomon, what president, what emperor could be better than God? Yet we are so often slow to recognize God's power. We are slow to recognize Him in His glory, to serve Him as He rightly deserves. Does this diminish Him? No, God is no less glorious for our failure to recognize His glory. But we miss out on the opportunity to share in what He is doing, to delight in glorifying Him. We just read this whole passage about the ark and the victory of God over Dagon, His power in punishing His enemies, and the clear evidence of His power over creation and the forces of nature, and yet it happens out of the sight of God's people. It's in enemy territory. It's behind enemy lines. God's people are not there to see it. Now, maybe over the course of seven months, they begin to hear things secondhand, but they are not the main audience. Brothers and sisters, we may not see God's power at work. We might not know what He is doing at the moment. But that does not mean that He is not acting, that He is not conquering, that He is not accomplishing His purposes. Our failure to see, or God's choice not to show us, does not diminish the reality of His action and power. And also, since they're not there, they're not participating in it. There is no David conquering Goliath. There is no judge like Samson or Gideon who's been raised to drive off the Philistines. There is not a single human participant in the defeat of the Philistines. The vindicating glory of God's power happens apart from a finger being lifted in Israel. No Israelite economic, political, religious, or military power is on display. It is God and God alone. God alone receives the glory for the defeat of the Philistines, for it's God alone who accomplishes the victory. God does not need us. God does not need me. He does not need you. Which leads us to a wonderful place. God who does not need us to see, God who does not need us to participate, gives us the gift and privilege of being His people. For He has shown His glorious power. He doesn't keep it under a bushel. He demonstrates it in history. He sends prophets to speak of it. He raises up people to record it so that we can see what He has done. And then He invites us into the mission of declaring His victory over every enemy so that we can delight in the recognition of His glory and share in His kingdom. How privileged are we that Jesus came with the same power, defeating Satan and casting out demons, showing His power over evil forces. How He showed His power over disease and death, healing and restoring even from the dead. How he conquered the enemies of his people, sin and death, when he walked into the grave and came back out. His arrest, trial, crucifixion, and death was so that he could show that there was no God, there was no force, there was no power, no enemy that Jesus could not nor would not conquer. And he didn't do it out of sight. 
he came and revealed himself saying that the promises of God were being accomplished in him. This was the gift of God to show us his power, to show us his victory. And yet, Jesus, who has all authority on heaven and earth, when he is preparing to go into heaven to return to his Father's side, he commissions us. He gives us the gift of sharing in that great work as we proclaim the gospel, as we make disciples, baptizing them and teaching them all that he has commanded. We have a great king who has shown us his greatness and invited us into his kingdom. He has given us his word. And if we are trusting in other powers, we can repent and trust in him and his power. And if we are walking with him, he gives us power to resist fear and despair that come when we don't always see what is happening, where we might not be personally sharing in what he is accomplishing at the moment. Brothers and sisters, we have a God who is more powerful than we can comprehend, who is able to glorify himself apart from us, and yet has chosen not to repeat chapter 5 of 1 Samuel. He has chosen to send his son to show us his power, that we might share in that victory, and that we might be drawn into his kingdom to proclaim that victory. Some of us have waited a long time for that good news. Some of us this morning, this might be the first time that we hear that good news. But all of God's power, all of God's goodness, He offers as something that we can share in, in Christ. Whatever we're facing right now, as an individual, as a church, as a nation, as a society, it is not the end of the story. Because God's power and glory is greater. And we have seen that in Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your power. We thank you that you told your people what had happened, that you showed your power so that they would remember in the future that there is no enemy that you could not conquer. Thank you, Lord, that instead of leaving us out, Lord, you invite us in. We are broken vessels, but you allow us to participate in your work, not according to our strength, but your strength to use us for your glory. That is the story of Israel. That is the story of your church. That is the story of Christ Church PCA this morning. Help us to walk in this truth, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.